0: God, we we do thank you for just the blessing of being together. Uh, Father, we come to you and and humbly ask that you would bless this worship service, that you would be working in in our hearts, uh, that your spirit would be filling us, that you would impart knowledge to our hearts and to our minds as we open up your word. Father, we do so in pursuit of you, a great and an awesome God, we want to Seek your face. Uh, Your word tells us to seek your face, and, O Lord, your face do we seek. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be giving us focus this morning, uh, remove distractions from us. Lord, prevent us from misunderstanding this text, and I pray that your Spirit would do a mighty work in the hearts of those that are here, and the hearts of those that would listen to this message. Lord, may you be glorified in it all. It's in Christ's name we pray, Amen. Well, God truly is to be glorified; uh, He is to be praised. As as Steve was talking, um, praise is due His name, and I just really thank Steve for uh, ushering our hearts into worship uh, already this morning. Uh, worship of a great God, and I think about just the privilege that we have of of being able to sing together, uh, the privilege that we have of of being able to pray together, Uh, the privilege that we have of being able to study God's Word together. This morning we have the blessing of getting back into the the book of Ephesians. And I hesitate uh, to remind you of this fact, but um, the last time that I was up here preaching, uh, nobody came back to the church for almost three months. (laughs) Let's not do that again. Um, Five months have gone by since I first introduced you to the letter... Uh, to the church in Ephesus, so it probably wouldn't hurt to kind of go through a little bit of a review about what Paul would set out to accomplish in writing that letter. Uh, remember that Paul loved the church in Ephesus, uh, he had a special relationship with them. Uh, he spent nearly three years of his life uh, teaching in the synagogues, uh, going from house to house, uh, sharing the good news about Jesus Christ there in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, Dr. Luke recorded for us the last time that Paul would meet with the the elders of the Ephesian church. Paul reminded them that he did not hold back from sharing with them the whole counsel of God. He warned them that even amongst themselves, uh, that there would be some men who would rise up and and that they would teach twisted teachings to, to pull true disciples away from Jesus and he referred to such men as, as fierce wolves uh, who would not spare the flock. And as they were pre- uh, preparing to part ways, Luke records in Acts twenty thirty six that Paul knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful. Most of all, because of the word he had spoken that they would never see his face again. Paul loved the Ephesians, and the Ephesians loved Paul. He wrote them this letter while under house arrest in Rome. In the first three chapters, if you remember, Paul was really setting out, reminding the Ephesians of who God is and what God has done. And then in the last three chapters, he's teaching the Ephesians how the church should live in light of the truth that he set forth in those first three chapters. And as you read this letter, and, and I really do hope that you do read this letter, you'll see that Paul had several points of focus. Uh, you'll see words like grace and power and peace and unity and mystery uh, repeated throughout the letter. You'll see how Paul's presentation of, of the God who is one in essence, uh, but three in persons, Paul writes about, God the Father, uh, he writes about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he writes about the Holy Spirit. It's clear from his words that, and from his prayers that Paul wanted the Ephesians to have enormous thoughts of God. Uh, Paul writes of the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Uh, he, he writes of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. He prays that the Ephesians would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul goes on to describe God as him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, immeasurable, unsearchable, unthinkable, incomprehensible, Uh, Such is is the God of the Bible, and such is the God that that Paul set forth in front of the Ephesians. He wanted the readers of his letter to understand what was beyond understanding. Uh, He wanted them to grasp the the breadth and the length, uh, the height and the depth of Christ's love. But he would then just conclude that such love is simply immeasurable. He wanted his readers to have great thoughts of of a great God Inadequate thoughts, either in number or in measure, handicap our worship of God. I'll say that again. Uh, Inadequate thoughts, whether they're in number uh, or in measure, thinking too little as far as the number of times or thinking simply too small about the God of the Bible, that handicaps our worship of the one true God. Small thoughts of God led the Israelites to, to make a golden calf. And to point at that golden calf and say, behold, our God who delivered us out of the land of Egypt. Small thoughts of God provoked the Jews to reject God as their sovereign and to demand that they would have a king like the rest of the nations. Small thoughts of God led David to be enamored, uh, not with the God who had chosen him, uh, but with the bathing Bathsheba. And he was so enamored that he committed adultery with her and conspired to have her husband Murdered. Small thoughts of God resulted in the Israelites completely rejecting the one true God, the only living God, and instead deciding to follow small g false gods of the Canaanites. Small thoughts of God blinded the Pharisees to the point that they preferred religion over a right relationship with Christ. Their small thoughts resulted in the murder of the Messiah. And small thoughts of God allow us to sing songs of praise to God and with that same mouth to speak evil of our fellow man created in God's image. And small thoughts of God allow kids to spend hours upon hours playing video games or looking at their phones or watching television without any thought of spending minutes in front of the word of God. Small thoughts of God lead us to searching for contentment in material goods, uh, being pleased with the blessing rather than with the blesser. Small thoughts of God lead us to search for happiness in a pill or, or in a drink, rather than in a joyful union with the creator of all things. Small thoughts of God cause us to make demands of fulfillment from our spouse, who, who is not designed to provide what can only be found in the finished work of Jesus on his cross. Small thoughts of God cause us to try to do things according to our own understanding, by our own power, rather than searching and and pleading for the Spirit of God to work in and through us. Small thoughts of God allow us to put on our our Sunday clothes, uh, to put on our Sunday faces, uh, to act a certain way with our Sunday friends, and then to go and act a completely different way at home. Uh, or at work. Small thoughts of God result in us thinking much of self and and very little of others. Small thoughts of God allow us to sin without much or even any regret. Small thoughts of God handicap and really corrupt our worship of a great and a holy God. And judging by what he wrote in this letter, it's clear that Paul did not want the Ephesians to have small thoughts of God. Uh, Judging by what I know of the elders at Makakila Baptist Church, uh, we do not want you to have small thoughts of God. And that's why we come up here Sunday after Sunday, opening up the Word of God. Uh, That's why our message is from the Word of God and not from our feeble minds, some more feeble than others. But um, having said all that, uh, let's open up our Bibles to the first chapter In the book of Ephesians, if you have one of the pew Bibles uh, that can actually be found out in the foyer, uh, that's it will be found on page 917. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Blessed be the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places In him you also, when you heard the tr- word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the very word of God. Our focus this morning is, is going to be on verses 3 through 6, really, but, but Paul wrote verses 3 to 14 uh, as one long and glorious uh, sentence. He's strung together 202 Greek words uh, to give a profound insight uh, into who the God of the Bible is. Uh, what God has revealed to us in these Holy, Holy Spirit-inspired words serves to expand, really, our, our understanding of who God is and, and what God has done, particularly what God has done in Christ. Uh, the last time we were studying this letter together, we saw that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, uh, we saw that in verse three. And if you remember, we, we considered a, a once very famous and now largely forgotten uh, investment banker, um, and she, she was not famous because she had so much money uh, This lady's name who was, was Hetty Green. Uh, she was not famous because she was rich, but she was more famous for, for being a miser. She was selected as, the, as being the most miserly, according to the Guinness Book of World Record. Uh, she had hundreds of thousands or hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank, but she would uh, eat cold oatmeal to save money on energy costs, right? So she, she had these great, she had this great wealth, these great earthly riches, but she lived as if she had none. Uh, and the point of connection that I was trying to make with bringing up Hetty Green was that in the Christian church today, uh, there are many people, many spiritual Hetty Greens out there, and I think that if we are completely honest uh, with ourselves, if we're honest with others, uh, we'll all confess that there have been times where we have been spiritual heady greens. Uh, we, we have lived our lives as if we do not have all of the, the richest bl- blessings in Christ. Uh, there are times where we have small thoughts of God. Uh, we get overwhelmed by uh, the surrounding circumstances. We get depressed. We, we live in fear We feel defeated. We live as if the spirit of the living God does not dwell within us. We live as if we have no spiritual blessings. But to quote Paul, that is not how you learned Christ. Having taught them in person for three years and now writing to them from prison in Rome, Paul is seeking to magnify God in the minds and in the hearts of the Ephesians. The way he does that is by telling them that as believers... In Jesus Christ, they have been given every spiritual blessing. And this is a profound truth, uh, one that really demands further explanation. Uh, And the vehicle that that Paul used to to provide that explanation uh, is what we call the doctrine of election. Uh, This doctrine is not something that was invented by great theological minds like Augustine uh, or John Calvin or or John Eliph. The doctrine of, of God's sovereign election in salvation is woven throughout the pages of Scripture. Um, For this reason alone, we must embrace the reality of God's election. And if you're taking notes, uh, you can make that as point one in your outline. Embrace the reality of God's election. As I mentioned earlier in verse 3, Paul proclaims the glorious truth that those who are in Christ, uh, those who have repented of sin, and believed in Jesus, have been given every spiritual blessing. And that's how he began this incredible 202 word theological masterpiece of a statement. Uh, everything that follows is an ex- expansion or, or an explanation of that thought. And so, the first explanation of the blessings we've been given in Christ is, is the reality that God chose us in Christ. Look at verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Stop there. We've got a lot of pronouns in the English, and pronouns are important. We need to make sure we're following what what Paul is saying here. Uh, Starting in verse 3, Paul is saying that God the Father blessed us in Christ uh, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and the way that the Father did this was by choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. My purpose here this morning is not to give some sort of long treatise on the doctrine of election or, or to win any kind of argument about the doctrine of election. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to to Paul's teaching here as, as a statement, uh, not an, as an argument. And that's really what it is. Uh, and Pastor John uh, had briefly touched on this uh, subject, on the subject of God's sovereignty in salvation uh, when he first introduced us to The the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, and and in the near future he might end up expositing some of Romans eight, some some of Romans nine, to really reinforce that point of God's sovereignty and election. Uh, So I'll leave the the heavy lifting to Pastor John, uh, but instead what I want to do this morning is is to just have us embrace the reality of God's election, and in in doing so to see the magnificence, uh, the indescribable majesty. Of God, and His choice of choosing you before time Uh, began—that is an act of of a great God. I want this truth to to expand your thoughts about God and and about His greatness, and that's what Paul did after all. He didn't point the Ephesians to Genesis twelve to show them how God had chosen Abram and told him to, to, to leave his land and, and to go to a land that God had chosen for him. Now, Paul didn't bring up Deuteronomy 7, where God said to the nation of Israel, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He didn't expand upon that to explain that God's choice of Israel was not based on any sort of greatness that they had, but that it was simply because he loved them. Paul made no mention of God's choice of David to be the king of Israel, having passed over seven of David's older brothers. Paul didn't even reference Jesus' words recorded in John 15, where he told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. In his efforts to get the Ephesians to see how great God is, and in the ways in which They were blessed in Christ. Paul told them, He chose us in Christ. But he didn't stop there. Paul continued by saying, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. When you begin to embrace the reality of God's election, you cannot help but think big thoughts about God. God chose you. That's an incredible truth. The fact that he chose you before the foundation of the world, that's just difficult to comprehend. Before time began, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were in perfect unity together. And as they enjoyed that perfect communion with one another, the decision was made to create the world and everything in it. But before creation began, the creator had thoughts of you. And if you're a true believer, it's a trustworthy statement to say that He chose you before the foundation of the world. It's a mind blowing truth. It's difficult to, to wrap our minds around a time when, when there was not yet time. Uh, but that's what Paul is talking about here. And in saying that we were chosen before the beginning of time, Paul's saying that God's choice of us was not based on anything that we had done or anything that we would do. Uh, How could it be? Uh, We we couldn't possibly earn merit for our salvation uh, before we were even conceived or uh, before our moms were conceived, before our grandmas were conceived, before our great-grandmas were conceived. You see see what I'm saying here, right? You, You get the picture. John Calvin, he put it like this. He said, the very time of election shows it to be free. For what could we have deserved Or in what did our merit consist before the world was made? The reality of God's election necessitates grandiose thoughts of God and much more humbling thoughts of ourselves. It totally eliminates any thought of any kind of boasting in the heart of the believer. We need to embrace this reality and allow God to use this truth to really transform our hearts and our minds Well, in addition to embracing the reality of God's election, we should also enjoy the motive of God's election. That's point number two in your outlines. Enjoy the motive of God's election. Look at the end of verse four with me, where Paul continues his thoughts on God's election. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I'll stop there for just a minute. Uh, do, do you see the beauty of that statement? Uh, are you following Paul's train of thought? He, he starts out by saying that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, he, he expands that thought by saying that God chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Christ, and then Paul reveals the motive of, of that electing or of that election. Uh, he reveals the driving force behind God's choice to save us when he says, "In love." He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. God's choosing cannot be separated from God's love. His choosing was not a random choice. I mean, God didn't have some kind of celestial roulette will or some kind of divine dice to try to figure out who was going to be saved. You know, God's election is grounded in his love. Marcus Bart put it like this. He said, far from any idea of arbitrariness, it has warm and personal connotations, speaking of God's election. When God's good pleasure is mentioned, his willingness and joy in doing good are indicated. It was in love that God determined beforehand whom he would adopt as sons and daughters through the work of Jesus Christ on his cross. Think through this with me, that, that in all 39 books, of the Old Testament, Uh, there were shadows of God being referred to as the Father. Uh, There there were mentions uh, only 14 times in those 39 books uh, that God was referred to as Father. Uh, And each of those 14 times, He he was referred to as a Father of the nation of Israel, uh, and not as a Father of of individuals. And that might seem... Uh, well, I'm not sure how it seems, but uh, when, when, when the Son of God took on flesh, uh, when Jesus came in the form of a human, he changed everything. Amen? Yeah. Everything changed with Jesus. Jesus came and, and the gospel writers recorded that some 60 times Jesus referred to God as Father, Father. In fact, the only time that Jesus didn't refer to God as Father was when he was on the cross and he was quoting Psalm 22 and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It might not seem all that incredible and maybe it just makes logical sense that God the Son would refer to God the Father as Father. But what is incredible is that to all who would receive Jesus... To all who would believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When Jesus taught his followers to pray, he told them to pray like this, our Father in heaven. In love, we were predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Paul told the Romans, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And to the Galatians he wrote, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you have the spirit of adoption? Do you enjoy the motive of God's election? When you think of God's love, do you think about his predestining love in which he adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ? J.I. Packer thought it was vital that we really grasp God's fatherhood and our adoption as sons and daughters. Listen to Packer's words. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and, and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. When we call out to God as as our Father, we are affirming and enjoying the reality of God's adoption of us as sons and daughters through Christ. We're testifying to God's great love. Uh, We're we're predestined for this in love before the foundation of the world. Thus far, we've seen that, that Paul, out of a desire for his readers to comprehend the incomprehensible, uh, to know that which surpasses knowledge. He set forth before them the reality that God chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that what motivated God's choice was a profound love. And so as we encounter this truth, uh, we should embrace the reality of God's election, uh, and, and we should also enjoy the motive behind that election. There should be much rejoicing uh, that accompanies a knowledge of God's great love with which he has loved us. Look at verses 4 through 6, where we see that there's one more thing that we should do. Uh, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are to engage in the purposes of God's election, that's point number three, engage in the purposes of God's election. Paul puts forth for us at least two purposes. I'm sure there are probably more, uh, but at least two purposes of God's electing love. Uh, first, we see in verse four that he chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. Uh, one of the false arguments against the biblical doctrine of election is that it basically um, it, it lets the, the believer... Uh, live a life uh, of their own choosing to, to really do whatever they want to do. They, they suppose that a, a believer would say that, well, if I'm chosen, I can live however I want to live. Uh, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. Now, as born-again believers in Christ, we're, we're, not free, we're not set free to sin. We're set free from sin. We're set free from being slaves to sin. And God's electing love is a a sanctifying love. God purposes that those who are saved by his grace through faith in Christ will be sanctified, uh, that they will progress more and more toward Christ-likeness. The Apostle John wrote it like this. He said, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love is. Of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in in, that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him, ought to walk in the same manner in which He walked. That's First John chapter two, verses four to six. If your life is characterized by by persistent and and conscious sin, uh, the truth of the matter is that you just might not be a true Christian. Uh, if your prevailing thoughts are, are thoughts of, of hatred, uh, if you refuse to forgive those who have, who have wronged you, uh, chances are you, you might not even be a Christian. If stuff and, and the acquisition of more and more stuff is what brings you the most happiness in, in life, uh, if your focus is on, on money and houses and, and retirement and comfort... And not on Christ, uh, there's a good chance that, that you're not a genuine born again believer. If you're constantly setting before your eyes uh, the graphic images uh, that should never, ever be seen, uh, if you would be devastatingly embarrassed uh, if your spouse or if, or if your kids or if your pastors saw your viewing history on your computer, uh, there, there's a good chance that maybe. You are not a true follower of Christ. God's choice of us before time began had purpose. Uh, God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Of course, we realize that none of us will be perfectly holy. Uh, none of us will ever accomplish complete blamelessness on this side of glory. Uh, and we also recognize that the righteousness that makes us right in God's eyes is not our own righteousness but Christ's righteousness and his alone we recognize that truth but we we also recognize the fact that God's saving love has a purpose and it is so that we would grow in our Christ likeness uh, that that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in light of our growing love of Christ if you've had the blessing of of being a Christian for For any length of time, you should be able to join along with John Newton who said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by God's grace, I am what I am. As we look at verse 6 again, we see God's greatest purpose in election Look there again, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now God's greatest purpose in election is for the praise of his glorious grace. God is about God's glory. Before time began, God's plan of salvation had the purpose of bringing him glory and and we're to engage in that purpose. Now, that's why we've been created. Uh, th- this is why we've been saved. Uh, we are to give praise and glory to God. And Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this question. It says, what is the chief end of man? Uh, another way of asking that question is what, is, what is man's purpose? You guys know the answer, right? The, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, this is clearly a point of emphasis in Paul's opening 202-word doxology. Uh, we see it there in verses 5 and 6. God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We see it in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Glory. Then in verse 14, we see it again, to the praise of his glory. This is to be a point of emphasis for for every Christian man, woman, and child. We must engage in the purpose of God's election and seek to glorify him in everything we do. Whether we eat or drink, it doesn't matter. Whatever we do, we are to glorify God in doing it. So as we, as we take a step back and, and look at this passage, uh, as we take a minute to, to really think about what Paul was, was trying to convey to the readers of the letter, uh, as we think about the prayers that Paul had spoken and written in his letter on their behalf in hopes of them being able to comprehend uh, the greatness of God, uh, we see that first he told them, first he told these Ephesian believers that they have been blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now the evidence that Paul sets before the readers of these blessings in Christ is the reality that they were chosen by God before the foundation of the world and, and we should really embrace that truth uh, that they were predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ uh, and we should enjoy that, uh, that, that predestination happened in love and, this, and that this was for the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And we should engage in that truth, uh, sharing it and, and, and praising and giving God the glory. In Paul's efforts to make much of God, uh, you can see that he was also making much of Christ, right? Uh, did you catch how many times he referred to these blessings being in or, or through Christ? The Father blessed us in Christ, the Father chose us. In Christ, the Father predestined us for adoption through Christ. All of this is to the praise of the Father's glorious grace with with which the Father has blessed us in the beloved who is Christ. If we walk away from from reading this passage with with small thoughts about God, uh, if we walk away without concluding that Christ truly is all, uh, then... We walk away without understanding Paul's intended meaning meaning in in writing this letter. J.I. Packer summarized the gospel in three words. He said, God saves sinners. Uh, Charles Spurgeon summarized all of his theology in just four words. Uh, He said, Jesus died for me. The Apostle Paul uh, he took 202 words <laughs> to sum up his thoughts of God's glory and, and to expand the, the mind, to, to, to magnify God in the eyes of the readers of his letter. As we think about election, as we think about predestination, uh, as we think about adoption as sons, we, we need to remember that, that all of this is, is, is an election to salvation, uh, it's a, a predestining to salvation. It's, a, it's an adoption as sons uh, from, from, from being in darkness and, and being brought into light. And this, this is all about salvation. Uh, the, these blessings that Paul writes about are only for those who are in Christ. It, it, Paul recognized that there was a need for salvation. The, the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Uh, the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that those who have not repented of sin and turned in faith to Christ, that the wrath of God still remains on them. They need salvation from that eternal wrath. Salvation is necessary because of sin, because of sin that we have committed against this holy And majestic God. And He predestined, and He elected, and He adopted. And this was a demonstration of His love for the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that gives us understanding. Of your word. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us in preserving this letter some nearly written some nearly 2,000 years ago. Uh, that we could read it now, that, that it's been translated into a language that we can understand. Uh, that we have copies of it readily available. Uh, Lord, this is grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, you've shown your grace in, in just giving us an opportunity to meet here This morning, Father, continue to lavish your grace upon us. Lord, may your Holy Spirit continue to bring to mind the truth of your word for the hearers of this message. Lord, if there are any who don't know you savingly, who might have fond thoughts about God, who might have affection toward you, but who have up to this point rejected God the truth of your word rejected the good news about Jesus Lord I just pray that you would grant them repentance now Lord they're still dead in their trespasses and sins would you breathe life into them by your great love would you save them Lord for those saints that you've already saved ask that this message that you would use this use the truth of your word to sanctify us to make us more and more like God Christ. Lord, we we ought to walk in the way in which he walked. Lord, may that be the case for each and every one of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.